0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast. Gen X rebelled against boomers with their own kind of nihilism, irony, I'm a loser, baby, why don't you kill me, fight club, all of the Gen X signifiers. And I do think that millennials have said, fuck that. I'm sick of this negativity. I don't like it. And, And it's just normal.
1: Welcome to Chosen Family, I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. We are two
0: weeks into 2020. So we
1: can stop saying Happy New Year.
0: We can stop saying that. (laughs) Also, I mean, like, I've never even bought the concept of a new year. Like, nothing actually resets. Like, we're not starting back at zero. It's like we're still carrying all the shit that we were carrying with us. The year before and all the years before that.
1: You're in a great mood. I'm
0: in a great mood. I'm not depressed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The astrologers would say that January 2020 is a pivotal moment. Things are really shifting and changing. It's a time to get out of our comfort zone. Okay. One of my resolutions this year is to try to talk to people I don't necessarily agree with. It's a political year. There will be an election in the U.S. And it's going to be very polarized. I'm so not ready. (laughs) Even you
0: just saying this right now, I'm like, I do not know how I'm going to rise to the occasion of this Channel
1: Oprah, just lead with your heart. Just like
0: Yeah, but I do think talking to people that you don't necessarily agree with is a good idea, and it's something that we've actually been wanting to do on Chosen
1: Family for a while. Like we, we even wondered if we should talk to a, a straight man.
0: I know, we came
1: close. You heard him in the opening. Brett Easton Ellis is on the show today. He is, of course, best known for writing American Psycho.
0: The book centers around serial killer Patrick Bateman. The film was also, I mean, quite a phenomenon at the time. Christian Bale, iconic, unforgettable. <laughs> These abs. Those abs. <laughs> um, You might not know this, but Brett Easton Ellis is gay.
1: Everyone's always surprised when you bring it up. I because, was
0: really surprised. Because
1: Patrick Bateman is such a stereotype or archetype of the alpha... Man who works on Wall Street and who wants to get laid with women.
0: Yeah, I think that's a character that so many straight men quite horrifyingly identify with. Because I think it was sort of meant as a cautionary tale, but instead it sort of became aspirational.
1: whole like body of work was kind of weirdly misinterpreted. That started with Less Than Zero which was published in 85. He was only 20 years old when he published it. It's about the fast life. It's about life with drugs and alcohol. And in, in the movie version, Robert Downey Jr. and, and Andrew McCarthy played the protagonists.
2: I think Julian's in a lot of trouble. This cannot go on forever. You owe me a lot of cash.
1: I, I don't know what to do and you're the only
0: one. What happens when you pay? I don't need a discussion on the finer points of morality. Spare me!
1: In a weird way, it sort of created that culture that has become the influencer Instagram hipster subculture, but that's very materialistic, inspired by the yuppies, inspired by, you know, the the delusion after the counter uh, culture of the 60s and 70s. So in a way, it's I don't really know how to take his work. Yeah. Like,
0: is it his vision of the world? (laughs) It is
1: nebulous. So now Brett is no longer really writing fiction um, he's hosting a podcast where he lives in West Hollywood and um, he has a boyfriend Todd who is a millennial and is quite present in his first book of non-fiction called White. He really uses the essays to explore our culture, explore the cult of likability on social media or our fear of confrontation. He belongs to the Generation X and he's quite vocal about what he thinks of millennials.
0: He thinks we're way too sensitive.
1: He calls us the wuss generation. (laughs) So in one of the chapters, he's actually writing about Moonlight, the movie uh, that won Best Picture. He asks, when did people start identifying so relentlessly with victims? And when did the victim's worldview become the lens through which we began to look at everything? Do you agree with that question? What do you think? It's
0: so complicated. And we've all been victimized and traumatized In different ways, no one gets out of this existence without that. I've been a person in my own life that has really tried to move beyond that and not remain attached to it. But I understand that it's difficult and I understand that not everyone is able to do that.
1: And what is pretty interesting is that Brett opens the book um, sort of stating that he is himself a victim of the people online who canceled him after he posted some pretty provocative content on twitter especially over the years. about gay
0: media he really yeah there were some tweets
1: well he's he's charging against what he calls uh gay political correctness you know he, he tweeted that mad bomer the out gay actor with like a, a six-pack 12-pack so can't hot, get any hotter married most generic father hot. he said that Matt bomer could not play christian gray from 50 shades of gray because he would not be believable as a straight man which was interpreted as being kind of homophobic and then he was disinvited from Events. I
0: give him credit for never shying away from controversy and the first thing that we wanted to know was how he felt the public perception of him had changed since his first book was published 35 years ago.
2: There's still the same amount of admiration and the same amount of hate. And I think that's always been intertwined with my career from the very beginning, mm-hmm. from my first novel, Less Than Zero, which you are all way too young to remember. It came out the year I was born. Oh, it the <laughs> year I was born. Well, you're still too young to <laughs> yeah. remember what it was, but you, people tend to forget. I mean, when that book came out. Uh, there was outrage in the media that h- how dare a, a respectable publisher publish the diary of an 18-year-old drug addict, which was how they saw it. Yeah. And, they re- and there was really this intense controversy about this is the end of publishing because this junk is being published. Wow. And, I, and I went through that. I mean, You
1: were a college student at the time. Like, how did you react to that backlash, that controversy? I,
2: you know what? The armor had been built. I mean, mm. if I could deal with my father... I can deal with bad reviews in The Village What was your father like? Well, my father, I realized lately, as I've gotten older, as I neared being his age, uh, he died young. He died at 50. Um, I realized... Uh, I became much more sympathetic to my father and his disappointments. Mm. I realized that he was a man of a certain demo, of a certain era. He had certain expectations. He had certain expectations in the kind of son he wanted. And I think that I did not meet any of those expectations. And I do think then, which I think is probably different from now, where a father would accommodate himself to a son and nurture that son. My father just was not in that Uh, That demo, that generation. And in many ways, I have to uh, be grateful for him in a certain way, because, of course, there was a lot of pain involved with having your dad reject you on so many levels. But there was also uh, the added plus of, okay. I got to grow up and I got to do this on my own. And if my father doesn't believe it, that I can have a literary career or that I should be writing books and that I'm gay and that um, I don't conform to any of the notions of masculinity that he expected from his generation, I, I ideally sports and football um, – you know, then that was just, I was just gonna have to deal with that on my own. And I was gonna have to process that on my own. I was gonna have to grow up. right? And so on. A, and I also have to say, it certainly made me wanna write. It mm-hmm. made me wanna take the pain that I felt right. and the rejection I felt and turn it into something, not just let myself wallow in it, not let myself just have to go right. to a shrink and talk about it, but to actually create from it. So I have to thank him for that. I really do have to thank him. On one level, for being for for giving me that gift, but also you know not having a dad is problematic.
1: What you're describing is, is is sublimation. Like you 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 were able to take that pain and create a work of art based on that based on that childhood. That's really specific. You grew up in the '70s in in sort of a suburb of LA. Yes, uh, affluent family. Your dad was an alcoholic. You use that that term yes. in your book uh, White. Um, which we'll get back to. Uh, why? But just to circle back, why do you say your father prepared you for the backlash that you've gotten from, you know, less than zero, but also American Psycho?
2: Look, look, growing up in that house, and I saw it as a kind of haunted house, which I actually wrote about in Lunar Park. Yeah. I mean, you really do... You build a set of armor. You're able to deal with a lot of stuff when you have a father like that. And he did prepare me for the disappointments and the criticisms of the outside world. So by the time I was in college, and I had already decided to be a writer, and I went to a college that had a very good writing program, the stories that I were writing were r- really criticized a lot, especially by teachers who didn't understand this, this effectless first person prose with all of these brand names, and you're mentioning pop stars. and It was the already there. Rock-
1: the, the style, the Bret Easton Ellis style was already oh, yeah. there in the first stories you were writing in college in and, in school, and, and in high school and in high school
2: as well. And I was told by a teacher that if I continue to write like this, I would end up on the ash heap of literature <laughs> that no one writes wow. like this. No one even wants to read this stuff. Nothing happens in this paragraph. And I said, and I thought a lot of stuff was happening in that paragraph, depending on how you read it. Yeah, seemingly, it seems like it's about a numb person who's just inventorying stuff and i 'm talking about lesson zero, yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. sections of lesson zero and I thought there is something so interesting about what this boy is telling you about his life and I also was very interested in this idea as a young writer as uh, with numbness as a feeling, as an actual feeling that people have and not just something you don't feel. You feel numbness. And so it was... All of this was forget it. It was way over the heads of a lot of my teachers. But I never really let it stop me. And I think if I had been... I don't want to use the term weaker, but more susceptible to people's criticisms of my work um, because I was already hardened by my father and I already was standing up to him. I don't know what else was going to knock me down. The question of what kind of
1: man to become, I understand, in this household was fundamental. It was central. What kind of man were you to become? And it's also fundamental in American Psycho because people remember more the sort of the, the critique or satire of capitalism and Wall Street and finance. and right. Patrick Bateman as this sociopath and the serial killer. But what it's you've said that, like, deciding what kind
2: of man you wanted to become was a fundamental oh. part of that book. A huge part of it. I mean, I didn't want to become a man in that society. And yet there seemed to be no other society. I'm talking about American society yeah. and the upper echelon of American society. And I really didn't. I felt like I was an outsider anyway, because I was gay. Uh, of course, being gay, you can pass. You're not like you're well, like a person the, of that's color. the thing with you is you people, can pass.
1: people are surprised when they learn you're gay. Still,
2: to this day. I've been, well, I talk about my boyfriend to the point where people ask, <laughs> no. me, to ask me, stop talking about your boyfriend. Stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, it no, you know, I see it as a very, uh, just another aspect of who I am. But I don't define myself as being a gay person. I, I define myself as being a writer, actually. But, um, but no, I didn't want to become that kind of man. And I didn't want to become the Patrick Bateman prototype, which was what all the guys wanted to be. Everyone was yearning to be that successful, hot, yuppie guy. Actually, you know, it sounds kind of sexy on a, on a certain surface well, level, and it is sexy. But still, what it represents right. the what's behind it all. And I look, I saw, it, I I dated guys, I lived with a guy who's not as bad as that. But there was <laughs> a central thing missing because of what. They you it. were attracted right.
1: to that clearly. Clearly, I was in in, the, in that world you've created in the first like three, few novels, Rules of Attraction and, and American Psycho and Less Than Zero. Like that sort of numb uh, guys asking themselves what they're going to become and being cold, being detached from their emotions, yes. being perfectly. Fit yes. And sort of fitting in. Yes. Which we're living now. That's the like, thing. Is I, that's feel like so, I feel like
0: it's even more amplified. Even people on Instagram, like, their homes kind of are Patrick Bateman-esque. Like, everything is so perfect. Everything is so clean. Everyone is so ripped. And everyone is sort of seeing that as aspirational. It's, it's almost like
1: it, instead of seeing the warning of Patrick Bateman, mm-hmm. they saw the fantasy and, and the prescription.
2: Well, this has always been a problem. Some would say with my work, you know, every Halloween, every Halloween, I'm sent hundreds of selfies by young guys dressed up as Patrick Bateman going for Halloween in the the bloody slicker. And I have 20 on my Instagram from this past. And we need to remind people that like he rapes and kills women. He does. And, you know, as someone pointed out, journalists here point out, well, he also kills the same amount of men, just not in as graphic a style.
0: Patrick, thanks so much for looking after Courtney.
2: Dorcia, how impressive. How on earth did you get a reservation there? Lucky, I guess. That's a wonderful suit. Don't tell me, don't tell me, let me guess. Mm, Valentino Couture. Uh Uh-huh. You look so soft. Your compliment was sufficient, Louis. Were you already, at the time, uh, reading Joan Didion? I was. I was reading Joan Didion in what I don't know, you have the same system here, 10th grade, 11th grade, middle school. is that It's what a it's bit called? different
0: here, but we. we Sixteen.
2: Yeah, we yeah. understand America. OK, everybody. good, good. <laughs> well, probably better than I do. Can. <laughs> I don't know if I do anymore. Yeah. I don't. But yeah. um, 15, 16. Yes. And she was the big influence. And so I began st- trying to write like her and realize that I never could be that good but I can at least aspire to it.
1: She has that collection of essays called The White Album. Yes, which You does. said it's your favorite uh, collection it is. of nonfiction. It and is. you've just published your first book of nonfiction, White. Yes. Which has been translated in French. It's why you're here in Montreal. Um, the title, you initially wanted to call it White Privileged Male. Yes. And you I didn't. Did. Why?
2: Look, first of all, we needed a working title as I was working on this collection. These, a lot of this is from my podcast. A lot of this is from older articles that I've written. And then came the time to uh, repurpose it all, rewrite all of it. So it was like one coherent essay put into eight sections. And my editor said, what's a working title? And I was thinking of the White Album, the White Album, something like the White Album. And I came up with White Privileged Male as a joke. And I said, let's just call it White Privileged Male because it's obviously from the mindset of a White Privileged Male. We can't pretend it's not. I'm going to be mentioning throughout the book that this is where I'm coming from. And as we got deeper into the book, my editor said, you know, I like that title, but I don't like it now. It's far too jokey and mm. it's just too wink-wink. And I think the book is more serious than that. And so there were a number of people... Two editors who worked on it and another friend of mine who uh, runs a, a giant website. They said, well, why, why don't you just call it white? And we all said, well, that might be a problem. Right. And, but also- Why, why would that why, be a problem? Well, that's the other question. Why would that be a problem? And why should that be a problem? And if it is a problem for a reader, then maybe they need to check out why that is a problem and it, why they react or they're triggered by the word. We also knew, my uh, th- th- my designer and I, that what we were describing was a thing that's going to be disappearing. And Chip Kidd was very specific, and so was I, about having the title white disappearing up into the heavens and a more m- multicultural attitude rising up from the bottom. And that was an acknowledgement. So the idea is like, okay, so it's called White, which is about whatever, neutrality, being chilled out. The book is... is or race. A, like, that's the that's the thing that people can read into. That That definitely is. But I didn't see it that way, and I mm-hmm. didn't want it to be right. that way. But I also, I had to admit that two of my editors thought it was playful. And if it's not playful, then it's triggering. Then maybe you're doing your job because maybe it shouldn't be triggering Uh, And and that's how it came up. It's
0: provocative, for sure. I guess it is provocative. Even just looking at the design and you're you're describing that idea of disappearance, what do you feel... Are the things that are disappearing? I
2: think what's disappearing is, and this is from an old man's point of view. I'm 55. Is that 55 is not old? No, but I'm. (laughs) You're just not. You're not young. It's not young, right? (laughs) And I find myself often in you know whatever a Starbucks or a or um, an H and M also. (laughs) Well, well, 28 is old in West Hollywood. Okay, (laughs) you're you're an out of work twink by the time you're 29 in West Hollywood. But um, (laughs) for me, metaphor is disappearing. Mm. The idea of seeing something as something else and a kind of literal mindedness, a kind of ideology has come into play. And it makes everyone look at something in one way and they're not open to the idea that it can mean something else, that it could be a metaphor, that jokes don't necessarily aren't an attack. Uh, an idea is something not to be. Immediately disparaged because you don't agree with it. I feel that in the last 20 years that that has been disappearing and that a kind of ideology has hardened into our discourse and that we're not really talking about style, the artist, what the artist is doing, what's the secret meaning behind what they're saying. And I think it I go back a lot to F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said in order to have a first rate mind, whatever that might be, is an artist has to look at a rose and describe the beauty of it. And then they also need to describe the horror of it. Mm-hmm. What's scary about a rose? Mm. What's scary about a rose? Well, you can describe a rose right. as being scary and fecund and red and blood dripping. You know. So I don't know. I find that to be missing. Does my boyfriend, who's 33.
0: I find that so interesting because I don't necessarily disagree but i think what you're describing in terms of the artist process about looking things in different ways and it's because there's clearly a thoughtfulness in what you're doing and but i feel like the culture is so saturated with people who especially in comedy there is not what you're describing in terms right. of process and thought there are people who are just sort of blindly throwing things in the culture and calling it a joke or calling it art when it's not really well, well,
2: well many people said that about me. Right, when with American Psycho and I, so I, I've had to deal with it and I've had to be quote unquote canceled at one time for right. about a year where no one would touch me and everyone thought my career was over because of that book right. I wrote. So I, I
0: I understand that. I guess my question is about intention and how do we determine what someone's intention? is.
2: Very hard is. to do. Very very
1: hard. Does to it do. matter?
2: I that's another question does it matter? I mean,
1: we'll give an example. You're prolific on Twitter. You had this really controversial tweet when you uh, meant, you said that watching Glee yes. was like stepping into a puddle of HIV. <laughs>
2: yes, I and, did. I and did write and that. I
1: think there's a difference between uh, a gay man making that remark and the straight man making that remark. I think coming from a gay man, I love the sort of like the satire. I love the sort of self-reflection. If it had been coming from a straight guy, I don't think I would have found that What's funny. a puddle of HIV anyway? It's not a thing. It's, well, it's <laughs> not a thing. It's It's, not a, thing. it's a
2: loving puddle of it. Okay, Look, the thing is, that was also, I mean, Twitter was completely different then. And Twitter was the Wild West of uh, offense. And it was making crazy jokes and, you know, being offensive right. and being
1: offended. And it's almost like a manifestation. It's like it's a Gen X fantasy because you describe your own generation as like so full of cynicism and irony and and humor and but it's sort of like it's that fantasy kind of became something else completely
0: and I think part of the reason why it became something else completely and maybe I couldn't articulate it before but I think it's because a lot of people have co-opted humor as a way to unleash this sort of genuine hatred I don't feel like that's where you're coming from I don't feel like what your work is mean spirited you know
2: As the writer David Shields once wrote, and I quote him in the book, is that uh, love is good but hate is good too when right. it comes down to creating art so much of my work is based on whatever pain I feel at any given moment and the writing of the book is a way of resolving the pain but I also think that look this is just what happens between generations I mean Gen X rebelled against boomers they're aspirational their self-involvement with their own kind of nihilism coldness, irony you know uh, I'm a loser baby why don't you kill me fight club all of the Gen X signals. The fires. And I do think that millennials have said, "Fuck that! I'm sick right. of this negativity. Yeah. I don't like it." And, and it's just normal. It's mm-hmm. just a normal movement from one generation reacting against. Yes another.
1: and no, because mm-hmm. we were also we're old millennials, and we were raised by that anger, like the culture. Old millennial. Yeah, that's, what a term. That's right? a thing. That's a different thing from young millennials. <laughs> it's because of the internet. And there's a part of the
0: millennial generation oh, oh. that really had the internet earlier on in their yeah. lives, and then. Older millennials so what, who what we mean by less this is like involved.
1: mass media when we were kids was created by Gen X. So right. I like Gen X culture. I like the cynicism. Like you're – it's not that I'm against it. Right. Um, I feel like there's more of a war between millennials and
0: boomers. Yes, I agree. You,
1: you're you critical of, of Generation Wuss, like you say, but also you care about us. Um, can you say something nice about did us? Did you
0: coin Generation Wuss? <laughs> well, well, I've never I, heard
2: that term before. I guess I did. But
0: <laughs> – um, I, I'm
2: curious about what your definition of that is or like okay. what
0: what you mean by that.
2: I meant that when I was first seeing Todd, I was shocked by what would trigger him. Mm. And I couldn't believe that he would react <laughs> to some stuff in such a way that was seemed overreacting to something, whether it was something we saw on TV, whether it was someone giving an interview, whether it was a work of art, whatever. Triggering seems to me to be a kind of confusion. I think when you're triggered, you're confused by something. And I think having an anger that is almost... Um, uh, that's bigger than the specific thing you're talking about. Things ha- that happen in life, like love affairs that go wrong, like the evils inherent in a capitalistic system that crushes this. World. I'm not. I'm talking about specific things that he saw. Uh, we got into a giant fight i describe about, about this prank that Dharam Ravi did to this kid in his dorm room right. about 10 years ago. The kid couldn't deal with the prank. He committed suicide. That was our first big fight. Wow. Uh, Tyler Clemente was the kid's name. He was gay, and he and uh, his roommate had just filmed him ki- making out with he a He jumped off the bridge. He jumped off the bridge. I thought ridiculous. I thought this is ridiculous and Todd said it was completely understandable that's just not a simple dorm room prank. That is a major violation of that person's privacy and we got into it and And then I understood okay this is how he sees the world. This is how I see the world. It's very different. So that's how Generation Wuss came up but I guess you could say sure you could say that I'm triggered in terms of was by that enough to start doing tweets about Generation was that that was a kind of triggering thing. I thought it was amusing and I didn't take it too seriously. As you can tell with generation was, it's such a Gen X snarky way to put something. But i was I'm
0: curious in that story that you just described, after having that argument or conversation with your boyfriend, did your perspective on that situation change?
2: It's very interesting because one of the big conversations Todd and I have had is about the notion of how we've grown up and that is such a huge thing. There were no school shootings when I grew up. I did not know a single person on meds. Uh, I knew no one, no one or heard of anybody commit suicide. It was a completely different world. We also didn't have social media. We didn't mm-hmm. also have a display culture where we were judged so unremittently and so harshly.
1: September 11, the Iraq September war. September 11, two of, wars. Yeah, two, two wars, wars. A president the recession, you can't stand. Now. Right. I
2: mean, it's understandable. You know, we started this
0: conversation talking about your father and the way that early on you knew that you just had to build that armor for yourself and you were able to do that and create and evolve. But we think that everyone can just do it. No, like I feel true. like I have that feeling too sometimes. I I'm know. like, I can be hard on myself too and not allow myself to feel things fully. I, but I not everyone is able to do that not everyone can something something you highlight in the book also
1: is how people are attached to a status of being a victim or a survivor of something traumatic and how if you need help and you need healing you need to go look for that do you feel that we hold on too preciously to that status today like that like, like the art is created based on being a victim
2: somewhere during the last 10 years there became this notion that everyone was oppressed. Right, we were all oppressed somehow. We were oppressed by something. The oppression Olympics something. is an expression, it, right? And we were all oppressed, and therefore we were all victims of something. And we were not heroes of our own narratives. We were not victors of our own narratives. And we kind of collapsed into these victimized selves that got a lot of attention that people mm-hmm. responded to. It's very easy. It's very mm-hmm. easy to do that well, and it's not great for media. Well.
1: It makes great media.
2: It did I don't know how long it can sustain itself, but that was that began happening, and with that became a whole new era of defining yourself by something that's painful for yeah. you and hard for you, and wearing that as kind of a badge instead of like why would you define yourself by something right. that's that's killing you or painful for you, why not?' You know, as you said, it's hard. And I say that in the book. It is difficult mm. to do. But it seems to be that some people just don't even give it a try. They wallow in it yeah. instead. And that is uh, I don't know. And And look, if it made them happier great i'm all for people being (laughs) happy but it doesn't doesn't. but at the same time but i
0: think we've all known people that i have been friends with people that are in those situations and i remember earlier on in my life like really trying to help and i sort of it would always lead to fights and arguments and i feel like i've learned that like you can't force someone out of that way of thinking Well, congratulations! I'm so happy to meet you because I just think you have the greatest personality. I also feel like you have the greatest personality as well.
1: Well, thank you. So I'm. Sorry. We're the Fab Five from Netflix and Eye. In the book, you also, and I love this passage about. Magical elves you talk about the sort of gay men who just like conform to this like corporate idea that now we don't have to be threatening as queer people right that we we get to participate in the global economy and we get to be olympians and we get to do all these things and to some level, I I'm kind of triggered by these magic. What do you mean exactly by magical? Well,
2: everything you said is great. Yeah. the fact that this is happening and that we have jumped so so far forward in what seems like ten years, yeah. almost ten years, it is great. There is though. And this is just not regulated to gay men. This is how I feel about large portions of society, that they have conformed to a kind of corporate ideology. I I talk about the Olympics with uh, uh, Gus and Adam, Adam, Adam. and these are the good gays. These are the guys who are going to really put put out, uh, I have issues sometimes with that. And I do miss the gay guy who has an edge to him, who it doesn't conform who is kind of brazenly sexual is it kind of is in your face and yet that is not accepted and i do miss that in all people yes. not just gay people all people right. uh, i maybe i'm more sensitive to it because i'm gay myself and i wish there was another kind of gay role model mm-hmm. and you know but then again i think my boyfriend would say who cares
0: i know i feel who sensitive cares? to it as a performer and as someone who's trying to build something, and then you see people who just because they're perfectly unthreatening... Likeable. Very likeable. And and also physically beautiful, you know, like physically perfect, that without doing anything instantly, they have a million followers which translates into... TV work, and it translates into a book deal, and it translates into all of these
2: things. I mean, look, what do I like in terms of gay representation and culture? Yeah. I like Call Me By Your Name.
1: Yeah. I like an
2: idea where it's just two guys in a movie that really is just like an old-fashioned love story. You know, it used to be the man comes to the uh, the compound for the summer, and Lana Turner's there, and they have <laughs> an, an affair, and then he leaves, and it's very teary-eyed. And, and I... I prefer well, that. Well, that's kind. interesting because there is, these are straight
1: actors who played gay characters. Oh. And you've also, but you've also, you know where I'm bringing I you because know you, you said like people wouldn't believe an out gay actor like Matt Bomer playing a notoriously straight character uh, like, like Christian Gray. 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 Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that is, that is one I example.
2: And I agree with you. I, that, I, and, I, and I reiterate, I do not believe that gay actors. Can't play straight parts. No. I absolutely and they and they yeah. well, believe me. We have like maybe three or four of our biggest international movie stars who so do that all the time. Uh. <laughs> so I'm not going to name names, but, <laughs> but anyway, would they so have it a happens. career if they were out? No, they wouldn't. Well, the you know, the problem is not about uh, the problem is. Capitalism. It's about the corporation. It is about the fact that Hollywood, who makes all of these movies, cannot sell a movie with an openly gay actor in it to a hundred territories Russia, Hmm. India. China. Yeah. I mean, so it's a business decision. It's literally
1: mission impossible.
2: Right. You can you can do but you know what? But even then, even if you make a Bohemian rhapsody or rocket. Yeah, Man, gets edited. Edited. So yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody is about a guy who breaks up with his girlfriend, <laughs> can't get together with a band, does a bunch of drugs in Germany, and right. then is reunited with his dad and a friend who happens to be a hairdresser. Right. And then gets to do his thing. But um, I don't know. I do, I do long for a kind of gay representation that isn't so squeaky clean, that yeah. isn't so part of the corporate machinery. Yeah. And it's just hard to do that. T- TV, of course, it's far easier. But in terms of movies, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard sell.
1: What I, where I agree with, with you, Brett, in the book is this um, orthodoxy, that we have to conform to this, to be a good queer or a good artist or a good person in the, in, in the creative industries. You have to conform to this idea of what it is to be progressive, what it is to be inclusive, What it is to not shock anyone, and I I think that's the issue. Is like if you don't want to conform to that, what place is there for you? And do you just walk away, or you just fight that conformity?
2: I think you fight the conformity. You fight it. I mean, but it's hard if you're if you've got three kids and you're making a living, and they're in school, and you've got a mortgage, and you've if you're very rich. You can probably say whatever you want, yeah, yeah. and you, you can afford to be canceled. Do you feel Most like people you learn. can afford to be canceled? I don't feel – well, I have been canceled, right? and I have been canceled uh, a couple of times. Certainly in the last couple of years, I've said things that have been taken out of uh, context, and I've been canceled in terms of comments I made about the Oscar uh, race for Black Panther, and which, believe me, if you want to be attacked on black Twitter for four days – Make a comment about Black Panther and see mm-hmm. what that it's not. It's not pleasant, but it was. That, it was really about Disney pushing. It wasn't against Black Panther. It was. But anything now, it's like if you mention Trump or whatever, there are just certain buzz things that get an audience riled up and they'll just go after you mm-hmm. no matter what. Um, but I don't. I, I don't feel that way because I have a podcast. The podcast was the realization after being attacked on Twitter and being canceled on Twitter was, oh, I can say all of this and put it into context and talk about it intelligently for 40 minutes. And then people can hear what I'm, I meant by that. And so um, that's why Twitter is just not that interesting to me anymore at all. And the podcast is.
1: It's so mm-hmm. fascinating because having a podcast, as I said, and, and, and being on social media is the antithesis of like writing a novel don't you feel like you're ruining your your
2: your legacy? In a oh, way? I don't care. I've never cared about my legacy. I don't mm. care about I mean, look, if I cared about my legacy, I'd be writing different books. I'd be trying to win prizes. I'd try right. to be appeasing people. I haven't published anything in 10 years. Right. So what's the legacy? I mean, a couple of books I wrote like in my 20s, more or less. I mean, <laughs> what's the legacy? That's my legacy. I don't feel that I have to protect Brett Easton Ellis, the, whatever the brand is. And I think the brand I've realized is that it's It's love and hatred are intertwined, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what's kept it going for 35 years. It really really was a realization I had about five years ago. It was sort of like, why did all my friends who got great reviews and won prizes 20 years ago, why are they selling real estate in Idaho? What was it about... My reputation in terms of – because I was so vilified. I was so hated by the uh, establishment literary community. I never won a prize. I don't get good reviews at all in America. And so I was wondering, is it tied together? Is uh, Do you have to, to have this this long-form career? Does part of it have to be you have to be truly hated by one side? Right. Does that keep it going? And I and I don't know what the answer right. is.
0: But... Well, it's interesting in terms of comparing that to what we were talking about and what you talk about in the book is that idea of likability. Right. and so like we're all to a certain extent under this impression that we need to be likable and likable all the time but no there is this element of hatred and I get it too When I get like a comment from someone and, I'm, and I take it personally and I'm I'm upset and I'm worried people always respond by saying it's a good thing that someone is pissed off like you don't want to be liked across the board I have to agree with that yeah. I
2: have to agree but you have to also be able to not let it get to you right? and not to read message boards
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> don't read your message boards if you want
2: to have a happy day don't read a message board Brett Easton Ellis, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Brett Easton Ellis. His latest book is a collection of nonfiction writing called White. He also hosts the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. You can watch the unedited video of the full interview in the Chosen Family Facebook group. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with?
0: What is your first obsession of 2020?
1: I've been thinking about Bombshell a lot since I saw it before Christmas, the movie.
0: With Charlize, Nicole, and Margot Robbie. I
1: mean, what a queer, baiting casting that is. Holy
0: trinity of blondes.
1: (laughs) Remember the trailer? Did you see it?
0: Well, I remember Nicole's wig.
1: Yeah, so they're in the elevator. There's a dramatic music. In here. The movie tells a story of how uh, the boss of Fox News, Roger Ailes, was brought down in 2016 following a suit of allegations about, um, the, you know, sexual abuse in the workplace. Um, so the characters of Gretchen Carlson, which is played by Nicole Kinman and Megyn Kelly by Charlie Theron, are, are presented as these feminist heroes who really bring down the patriarchal boss right
0: but in real life they're quite horrible women
1: well or horrible they're people. just they're conservative so I think the title of the movie could have been bad things happen to conservative people too <laughs> 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 but beyond that uh, the, 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 what's, what I find so fascinating is is how every award season there is a transformation
0: Charlize can't resist a transformation, she Nicole, either. Yeah. They love to get in a wig <laughs> or a prosthetic. They love because they know that that's what the Academy recognizes. They love it when someone really gorgeous, you know, well, that's h- how changes Char- their appearance.
1: That's how Charlize got her Oscar. Yeah, for, for Monster. Monster.
0: Maybe she'll get another one now.
1: Yeah. So she uh, she plays Megan Kelly Um and i i got into a dark hole trying to find out how she was transformed into Megan <laughs> Kelly and i have the receipts okay so it's quite the transformation she got the prosthetics from this japanese sculptor artist fascinating story his name is kazuhiro he won an Oscar for uh, transforming Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill. Oh. He was brought out of retirement. But the funniest thing is that he went into retirement because he was saying that Hollywood culture was too toxic of a workplace. Wow. And the irony that now he was working on a film about toxic workplaces. workplaces it's just this to like me, vicious cycle. I know. So he won the Oscar for that. But he's also responsible for creating the silicone mask for Brad Pitt in Benjamin Button. Oh. <laughs> and he Apparently, like a very meticulous artist, loves to work alone. Um, I couldn't help but like wonder, like, why do we value these, like, these artists so much? Who like trans, like, in this it's cool, but in this case specifically, it's like well, they're they're spending so much energy and time and money transforming this this actress into someone who's you know. What not, are you saying? Just get someone who looks more like her to no, be in the movie. No, why make the movie? Is what I'm saying. Like, why, like. Yeah,
0: because they what they're trying to turn Megyn Kelly into some kind of hero. That's and, like, it. Do we really need that's this? That's it, and
1: that's why I'm really obsessed and bothered at the same time. And torn, yeah, and torn. Oh. Yeah. What's your obsession?
0: Well, I guess mine is also equally conflicted, but I have become a brand ambassador for cats. Um, cats. The animal. Yeah, okay. no, I don't like. I, ironically, <laughs> I don't even like cats. The animals. Right. They freak me out. Um, but I went to see the movie. I mean, I knew when I saw the trailer last year that, like, this was going to be an epic disaster. Right. Like, I knew it. And to me, it's the kind of cinematic experience that happens maybe once every 25 years. Like, the last time was Showgirls. Right. Like, just in terms of the train wreck. This is an experience unlike anything else. So what's the cast again? It's Jennifer Hudson, Judy Dench, Taylor Swift, Jason Derulo, very oh, wow. randomly, Rebel Wilson. <laughs> but for me, I mean, my, m- the part of it that really has stayed with me is the song Memory. Who sings it? I, Jennifer Hudson. Of course. Of course. She does a phenomenal job, like beyond phenomenal. But when I saw it in the theater, I, it made me burst out laughing. Like the theater was quiet. I just... It was so over the top because there's this climax in the song where they sing, touch me. It's like the giant climax. It's (laughs) operatic. (laughs) Exactly. Someone made a YouTube montage of like 30 different singers just doing the climax. (laughs) It's like, it's the most, it's the most iconic climax in a song. I think Nicole
1: Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. She sang that song, yeah.
0: But so when I went home... I listened to just the recording, just Jennifer's voice. And that's where I really felt it. Like I started crying. Like what? she I feel like Jennifer Hudson brought every experience of pain that she has ever felt in her life.
1: Right. To this song Dealing with Simon Cowell on American dealing Idol. Dealing with Simon
0: Cowell. Dealing with I don't remember the details, but I know she went through something really mm-hmm. traumatic a few years ago where people in her family were murdered and Even beyond knowing Jennifer's story, Jennifer is a -a once-in-a-lifetime talent. What? She is on Whitney's level vocally, even superior, I would argue. I know a lot of people would disagree with me. The reason that I would say superior is because Jennifer can actually pull it off live as well. But she's just this force. Jennifer Hudson is a force. And you feel it when you listen to the song. I played it for my family at Christmas. Of my mom you did. and my sister, and the three of us are just <laughs> sobbing. Like, if you
1: can listen. So, you went from laughter to sobbing yes, yes. over the holidays with this song.
0: So, my challenge to everyone listening is to sit in a dark room, put this song on. If you can listen to it and not be moved in some way, you're not well. I'll do
1: it. Okay. I'll do Challenge it. Challenge accepted. Accepted. Okay. And we have some good news also with the obsessions.
0: Yes. We are turning this into a column for Daily Extra. We'll be expanding on what we've discussed on the show for our obsessions. So make sure to check that out every other Wednesday at extramagazine.com. That's X T R A magazine.com.
1: Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas Leblanc.
0: And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhaime. Crystal also edits and mixes the show.
1: Today's episode was recorded at the Phi Center in Montreal. Big thanks to engineer Phil Rochefort and the team at Robert Lafont for arranging the interview. Judy Gu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer
0: is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Narani is the executive producer.
1: Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys.
0: Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with By Studio.
1: Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts.
2: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.